Beloved, when my uh, beloved Margie and my most beloved children moved here uh, some 16-ish years, not quite 16 years ago, uh, we'd been here, I think, a year or two. Been uh, by, by this time, I was pastor of Santan Bible Church uh, in the early days. And when I was at uh, the coffee shop with Margie, we uh, somehow came across and met a pastor. I don't know if somebody, I think, I can't remember how we connected. The only thing I really remember about that initial meeting was he uh, told me that he had just recently gone to a meeting of pastors here in the East Valley. It was a, a meeting of pastors of, quote, significant churches of the East Valley, end quote. And I remember thinking that was kind of uh, interesting at the time. And I'll give you a, a couple guesses, maybe one guess, what kind of criteria you think they might have used, or perhaps a singular criterion that might have been used to define what is a, a significant church here in the East Valley. Uh, good guess. It was attendance. Now, it begs the question, how does God define the significance of a church? Um, after that initial meeting, I went and I looked at the website and at the website of that church, and I saw some concerning things in, and the sad uh, ending of the story was some years later that the man was discovered to be a serial adulterer with uh, multiple women in his own church. Be that as it may, how does God define the significance of a church? Uh, asking a different question. Can a church be the kind of church for which we can be thankful for? Can a church be the kind of church for which we can be proud of? And I'm using this language deliberately. Can a church be worthy of thankful boasting before the Lord? The sermon title this morning is A Church Worthy of Thankful Boasting. Beloved, please open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians. Uh, we were blessed to finish our journey through 1 Thessalonians last Lord's Day. Because of the tight coupling between these two books, because of the short time period in between uh, which Paul wrote the first letter and then the second letter, I want to continue on with Paul's ministry to the church in Thessalonica. Uh, beloved, this second letter of the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonians is a short book, but it is full of magnificent truths, vivid images, and strong exhortations. Our passage this morning are the first five verses, the first four verses, and I'll touch on the fifth verse a bit. But let us read the entire first chapter, only 12 verses in this first chapter, to set the stage for our embarking on our expository walk through the second epistle of Paul to the Thessalonians. Chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well 
when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. To this end also we pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power in order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, this is the word of the living God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, as we would walk through these first five verses, I'm going to give you three two-word phrases to kind of help us wrap our minds around the rich truth that God gives here. Helpful greeting, thankful boasting, and worthwhile suffering. And the intent here is even coming off of our journey through First Thessalonians that we as a church, we at Santan Bible Church, would excel yet more in being a church to be thankful for and a church to be proud of. So let's first look at Paul's helpful greeting. Uh, the greeting that we have from the Apostle Paul with Silvanus and Timothy in agreement is almost identical to the opening greeting of 1 Thessalonians. There are two small differences I will bring out. First, the authors, and the, these are the same, the exact same language he used in his first letter. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. Uh, Paul is the primary author, and Silvanus, that's another name for Silas. Silas and Timothy are in agreement, though Paul is the primary author. As I mentioned last time, this is God's terrific trio of preachers. God used Paul, as we would certainly know, but even Silas and Timothy in a great and mighty way in helping found new churches in Macedonia and the other Roman province of Achaia. So that's, for example, why when the Apostle Paul wrote his second letter, at least his second letter captured in Scripture to the church in Corinth, which is in Achaia, in 2 Corinthians 1.19 he said, the Son of God, Christ Jesus, was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy. So all three of these men were used by God to begin the ministry of the gospel in both Macedonia and Achaia. Now, Paul wrote the second letter to the church in Thessalonica, also from Corinth. Uh, this is only months after he wrote the first letter, maybe as, as soon as uh, two months after he wrote the first letter, not much more than several months after. And again, he's still on the second missionary journey, still in Corinth around A.D. 50 or A.D. 51. Uh, so the second missionary journey, Paul and Silas began that when they launched that from Antioch. Uh, they picked up Timothy and Lystra. They went on further, and then Paul, Silas, and Timothy picked up Luke when they were in Troas. And so we could say God's fantastic four of Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke launched in their boat from Troas, went across the Aegean Sea, and it was at that point that God took the gospel not just from Asia, but he then brought it into what we would now call would be Europe. So they went from Troas, they landed, uh, they went to a town called Philippi where 
Paul happened to meet a group of godly women by the river Ganges. And it was at this point that the gospel took hold of what would then become Europe. They went from Troas to Philippi. Then after Paul and Silas were thrown in prison, they left Philippi and went further on to Thessalonica. Now, I mentioned earlier that we know that Paul wrote the second letter from Corinth, and we know that from a few different reasons, from internal parts of the letter to be sure, but even more importantly, right here at the beginning, we know that Paul wrote this also from Corinth because it's the same authors, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Because when, in Acts 18, when Paul sails away from Corinth, after being there some 18 plus months, when he sails off to Syria, he leaves Silas and Timothy behind, and he has Aquila and Priscilla are his companions at that point. And in fact, it's likely that this occasion, when Paul, Silas, and Timothy were in Corinth, that was probably the last time the three of them were together in this world. They are together now in heaven, but that was the last time. So that is one of the reasons why we know this letter also, like the first letter, was written from Corinth. Now, what had happened is, if you were here in our previous study, you may remember that when Paul left Thessalonica, when they actually all left Thessalonica, they went down to Berea, still on the missionary journey, went about 50 miles uh, southwest from Thessalonica. Uh, God did a great blessing there. There was great progress in the ministry, but then some of the Jewish leaders of the synagogue in Thessalonica who were hostile to the gospel, uh, some of the Jewish men and women in the synagogue in Thessalonica were saved, but the people that had the power brokers there were quite hostile to the gospel. And when they heard of the success of the gospel in Berea. They sent some troublemakers down there and they stirred up some rabble from the crowd and then drove Paul especially out of Berea. He went on there from Athens and went on to Corinth after Athens where eventually Silas and Timothy joined him. So that was part of the background of what we had there. Now, when Paul was in Athens, he sent uh, Timothy back to Thessalonica to get a report, and he sent Silas to Philippi. Then they all, and this was what prompted the first letter. They all gathered back in Corinth, and with Timothy brought back the good, positive report of the church. Again, that was what filled into the first letter. Now, as we come to the second letter, we know that Paul has received additional information from some other courier, uh, again, some months afterwards, and that is what prompts the heart of Pastor Paul to write this second letter. He has practical concerns. He has pastoral concerns that feed into what he has here. So it is the same audience as the first letter. It's also, excuse me, the same author and authors as the first letter. It's the same audience. And now we know that obviously because it's the second letter to the Thessalonians. But when I say it's the same audience, it's the exact same phraseology that he uses here as he did in the first letter. Look again at verse one. It is to the church of the Thessalonians. So that's the exact same wording that he uses in the first letter, but the distinction here is this church in Thessalonica is the only church of all the different churches to whom Paul wrote where he uses that word of. For example, when he wrote to the church in Philippi and the church in Colossae, it was the church at Philippi and the church at Colossae. When he wrote to the church in Ephesus, it was the church in Ephesus. So there's something significant to the fact that it's only these two letters where he says the church of the Thessalonians. 
And I think what the Apostle Paul is doing here, what God is doing through the Apostle Paul is he's highlighting the witness of the Thessalonians in this pagan, crime-ridden, sin-filled city of Thessalonica and their stand for the truth. You may remember, even as I just now indicated, there were, to be sure, some Jewish people that were saved in Thessalonica, but the predominant majority of the congregation are Gentiles. They were former idol-worshiping pagans. That's why in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, Paul specifically says you turned from worshiping idols to serve the living and the true God. So I think that's part of the reason why Paul makes a special emphasis that this is a church of the Thessalonians, but then he continues on in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me say a few more words about Thessalonica. If you were here last time, and you may even know this from past study as well, this may be new information to you, but it's all good. Practice makes uh, permanent. Uh, you could say practice makes perfect. That maybe permanent is a little better one. Uh, Robin uh, shared that good uh, bit of information with me before. So Thessalonica is the northernmost port on the Aegean Sea. It has the Aegean Sea on the south, mountains on the north, and a major Roman highway called the Ignatian Way, which goes from east to west, passes through Thessalonica. It was the predominant seaport in the entire region and the Roman province of Macedonia. Uh, even to the point that Thessalonica became known as the mother of Macedonia. So it was a very significant town. It was a trade town. It was a seaport town uh, filled with sailors. So as such, and nothing against sailors if you're a sailor, sailor here, uh, but it was a crime-ridden, it was a sin-filled city. This is the backdrop. And so Paul's point, even by, again, this nuanced distinction of the church of the Thessalonians, he's telling us that they are an island of righteousness by God's grace and mercy for God's glory and for their joy in this sea of paganism. And it also means that they weren't just living in the sewage pipe of the Ignatian Way and Thessalonica, but they were thriving in the sewage pipe of the Ignatian Way in Thessalonica, even as a young, months-old church. Um, at most, they might now be a year or maybe a tiny bit older than a year as a church. So they are a model church. They are an example church, as we saw, even though they were young in the first letter. But there are risks and there are threats that will come out as we get into this letter. So they are the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So here, Paul does the same thing he did in the first letter and in all of his other letters to some degree lesser or greater to emphasize the oneness of God the Father and God the Son. And of course, God the Spirit as well, but it's God the Father and God the Son here. Two different persons, but one in being and equal in power and glory. And here's the first difference with the greeting from 1 Thessalonians. He says, our Father. In the first letter, he says we are in, it's the first church, it's the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here he says, in God our Father. So the question is, why does 
Paul make this emphasis here? Why does he make this switch here? And I think the situation is, beloved, as we go through this letter, we will see that the threats, which were already present when he wrote the first letter, are getting worse. Persecution on the outside and confusion on the inside. Persecution from persecutors, from afflictors. The heat is intensifying. And he's telling the church as the persecutions increase, as your afflictions multiply, God is our Father. God is your Father. Now, when we think of this, there are people here, some of you may have had been blessed to have wonderful fathers, good example fathers, men of character, men of honor, who gave you a good example, who loved you well who gave you a good example of a work ethic and good providers, husbands who loved your mothers well. Now, some of you may be here, and maybe you didn't have a good example of a father. Some of you may have not even had a father, even to the point that there's a, something of a void because you didn't have the kind of father that you know God would have a father to be. Beloved, in the same way we know God is a father to the orphans. God, the all-kind God, has a special place in his heart for widows. So also, if one didn't have a good example of a human father or even didn't have a father, we have a father in heaven. And that's why I think Paul here, in this first chapter, which is all words of comfort to the church in Thessalonica under the duress of persecution. He's driving home the point that you, we, have a Father who is in heaven. In God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. One more point on this, this whole dynamic. We often and rightly think of being in Christ. That was a big point Paul makes when he wrote to the church in Ephesus, for example. Here it's in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, There is no other world religion that uses language like this. You won't hear the phrase in Buddha. A Buddhist won't say that he or she is in Buddha. You won't hear from, we won't hear from our Muslim friends that they are in Muhammad. It's only in the one true biblical world religion of biblical Christianity where we are in Christ and not just in Christ, but in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul continues on in verse 2. He says, grace to you and peace. Uh, This is very similar. This is at the beginning of all 13 Pauline epistles. Now, we would say as our brother brother and sister lawyers, we would say that this is pro forma, but it is not merely pro forma. In other words, it is part of the standard greeting of the time in general, and certainly for the Apostle Paul, all 13 of his letters begin with this. But we mustn't look at this as merely pro forma. It's not just something that's wrote that to be passed by. This is God's empowering favor and God's showering shalom. This reminds us that we have grace for our sin and peace for our guilt. Grace to you and peace reminds us that God pardons us, that God pardoned you as judge, and God accepts us. God accepts you as your father. Even when we think of grace, grace is pardon and power. It deals with the front end of our salvation, and it carries us all the way through to the back end of our salvation, from election and justification all the way through sanctification and to eventual glorification. And beloved, you and I, we need both the pardon and the power at both ends. So 
The first difference in the greeting was our Father. The second difference, we continue on with the rest of verse 2, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In the first letter, Paul just said, grace to you and peace, and then he moved on from there into giving thanks. Here, he repeats himself with the same phrase that he used before. If you have a 1995 New American Standard, it says, uh, from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. The English Standard Version says, from God our Father. And I looked at the Greek and the manuscripts, and I think God our Father is the better reading here. And it certainly lines up with what we saw before. But be that as it may, he's emphasizing God's fatherhood. And even when we think of this second difference in this repeated phrase, we can ask the question, what does it mean to be in a father? What does it mean to be in a Lord? To be in a father, and uh, welcome to Atticus, a special welcome to uh, Atticus, second, uh, second Sunday. <laughs> we are blessed by babies. We love babies. Uh, what does it mean to be in a father? It means care. It means protection. It means provision. What it means to be in a Lord, it means ownership, authority, charge. Beloved, we are a family in the care of our Father. We are a workforce. We are a servanthood. We are an army in the charge of our Lord. What this means, beloved, this means rest and this means courage. It means, this means rest in the care of our Father and it means courage in the charge of our Lord. So again, this is a helpful greeting. It is a meaningful greeting. And that takes us to the second element, thankful boasting. Uh, First Thessalonians, there's a lot of similarity, but there's different accents and weights. First Thessalonians was, we could think of it as a compassionate letter from the heart of a pastor, of Pastor Paul. Second Thessalonians is a concerned letter, also from the heart and the pen of the Apostle Paul. He wrote this for a number of pastoral and practical concerns because, as I think I already indicated, the problems have escalated. The heat is turned up. The persecution on the outside and the confusion on the inside. There are persecutors on the outside and we will see there are liars and leeches on the inside. And so the Apostle Paul writes this letter, and what he does is he opens up the entire first uh, chapter is giving comfort by way of encouragement because of this first threat, this first risk of the persecutors from the outside. But then in chapters 2 and 3, he'll deal with the confusion on the inside. And what is taking place on the inside is there are unsettling theological tremors that are causing cracks and fissures to begin to appear in the solid foundation of this still fledgling, this still young church, but this model example church, this church which is a church worthy for thankful boasting. There are these threats on the inside of this confusion and this theological errors. That's why, look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. There Paul writes, We request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So some of them are being 
shaken. Some of them are being disturbed. And what apparently took place was somebody, some false person, some false prophet, forged a letter and said, this is a letter, this is a word of God from the apostle Paul and tried to pass it off on the Thessalonian church. So the persecution, heat is intensifying, and the confusion, even the threat from the inside is increasing as well. And what Paul does all the way through, beginning here in chapter 1, in this eschatological epistle, in this end times epistle, both first and second Thessalonians are known as the eschatological epistles, the end times epistles, especially second Thessalonians. Huge emphasis on the second coming, the future return of Christ. Even as I mentioned, the devotions that are provided of the songs that we will sing, you even may have picked that up, that much of the songs and the rich lyrics that we were singing before were in anticipation of the great hope that we have regarding the second coming of Christ. When all wrongs will be righted, when Christ's salvation judgment will be fulfilled, our Savior King, even as we sang. But then, We look at verse 3, look at what he says. He says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting. This is the thankful heart of the Apostle Paul. The distinction here is we ought, back in the first letter to the Thessalonians, he, he said we always are continually giving thanks to God for you. Here, he says we ought always to give thanks to God for you, as is only fitting. So how, what are we to make of this? Does this mean that maybe Paul and Silas and Timothy have broken their pattern and their prayer lives have been getting disrupted? I don't think that's what he means. I think this is part of the entire flow of the heart of the Apostle Paul that's wanting to give greater encouragement to this group of believers that are under the iron rod of both Jewish opposition and Gentile opposition. And he's even here pointing more and more to God's sovereignty, even as he would bring out human responsibility. I think that's why he says this is what we ought to be doing as is only fitting before the Lord. It's incumbent upon us to excel yet more, even as we would pray for you. I believe is what the Apostle Paul is saying here. But why is it appropriate and fitting for Paul to always give thanks to God? Look at what he says. Because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Greatly enlarged. The Greek word there, it describes an internal organic kind of growth, like a tree which would grow up from a sapling and grow into a mighty tree with huge branch branches and leaves and fruit. That's the kind of picture of their faith which is greatly enlarged. And their love that grows ever greater. It's different word there. The word there grows ever greater. Pictures like a, like a, a flood, an intentional good flood that spills over and irrigates a huge swath of farmland for the blessing and the growth of the fruit. That's the kind of language the Apostle Paul is bringing out here. And what he's saying is we could say it this way, faith is the, our vertical responsibility, our vertical response to God's grace. Love towards one another is the horizontal response that we have to God's grace. So Paul is 
thankful to God. Thankful to God because their attendance is greatly enlarged. Because their building grows ever greater. No, because their faith is greatly enlarged. Because their love towards one another grows ever greater. Beloved, this lines up with you may have heard me say or others say as well from the very beginning of Santan Bible Church all the way through here. uh, We love numerical growth. We love growth in attendance. We love this beautiful edifice God has given us. We love uh, progress. We love all those things. But always spiritual growth is, was, is, and always will be the focus at Santan Bible Church. And that is the heart of Paul because that is the heart of of God. And this growing faith and overflowing love is a spiritual barometer for the maturity of any local church, of a church that would desire to be worthy of thankful boasting. So, continuing on, look at verse 4. As a result of the Thessalonians' growing faith and abounding love, therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God. And we know back in 1 Thessalonians that other Christians, Christians around Macedonia and even from Achaia and even beyond the two Roman provinces of Macedonia and Achaia were reporting back. Even though the Thessalonian church was only several months old, the report was coming back to the Apostle Paul of their faith. But here in 2 Thessalonians, Paul says, we are telling other churches, we are proudly boasting about God's work in your life. And by the way, thankful boasting that I mentioned before, the Greek word translated as speak proudly here, it comes from the same root that is translated elsewhere of boasting. Uh, for example, in 1 Corinthians. So there is a kind of boasting that is right. And we can pause there for a moment and ponder this. A thankful heart and a boastful heart. That seems incompatible. That seems like that wouldn't go well, that those don't jive together. Uh, but do they? But beloved, when we see what Paul does here, a thankful heart and a boastful heart are perfectly synergistic, are perfectly compatible when the boasting is in the Lord. That is the distinction. And how do we know this? How do we know this here in the context? Look at what he said earlier back in verse 3. He said, I thank you Thessalonians for your greatly enlarged faith. And I thank you Thessalonians for the love. No, he's, I thank God. I thank God. So again, human responsibility, divine sovereignty. Paul thanks the Lord for the great work, the great progress, the great spiritual growth that he sees in this church. And so in this sense, thankfulness and boastfulness are two sides of the same coin. And before Paul moves on to what needs to be corrected and refined, he first thanks God for what God had already done in their lives and what God was doing in their lives. And let me make a comment here, beloved. It's very easy at time for believers to get caught up in legalistic pseudo-truisms. Um, I've heard it said, and by the way, I, I didn't mention this extra qualifier for the first uh, service, so if anybody gets offended, you can pass this on to them. I've heard some Christians say, no one from Santan Bible Church. It's been other contexts. I've heard some Christians say, well, I don't say the word proud. I don't say I'm proud of my children or proud of anything because that comes from pride. But we need to be careful with 
extra biblical kind of, if you want to do that for yourself, that's fine, but we want to be careful with that. Look at what Paul says here. We speak proudly of you. We boast in the Lord of a good work. I will say without hesitation, I am proud of my children. I am proud of my beloved Santan Bible Church in the Lord. I thank the Lord for his good work of grace in my children, for their, anyway, anyway. I thank God, and I thank my God for the work that you're doing in uh, Santan Bible Church, so that's where my passion is. Beloved, this kind of, let me get myself out of the equation, this kind of thankful boasting that we see here in the Apostle Paul, the kind of thankful boasting I'm trying to encourage you towards, it affirms without flattering, and it encourages without puffing up. So, thankful boasting, helpful greeting previously. The third element we see here is worthwhile suffering at the end of verse 4 and into verse 5. So what precisely does Paul proudly boast regarding the Thessalonian believers? It is namely this. We saw back in the first letter that they have true conversion. Paul made that very clear in the first chapter where he talked about their faith and their love and the hope that they had. They have a true conversion. Here they have a growing faith. They have abounding love. And at the end of verse 4 and 5, they have an enduring hope. They have an enduring hope for your perseverance and faith there in verse 4. For your perseverance, your steadfast loyalty, your fidelity, your unswerving Loyalty even through great trials and sufferings. Your great loyalty to the Lord, to the gospel. Your great loyalty to your fellow believers. And beloved, this kind of enduring perseverance, the same word translated as perseverance is translated elsewhere as steadfastness in Scripture. This kind of steadfast, enduring perseverance is not passive. Beloved, it is active. It's not merely complacent acquiescence. It means bravely standing firm under sufferings. It means loyalty to Christ in spite of fierce and ever-growing adversity. Now, to be sure, the adversity to the gospel message, the adversity to men and women that would desire to live godly in our culture and in our world is increasing. But, and even on the inside, there are some people in our society that would love to exterminate the nation of Israel. They would love to, if they could, exterminate every Christian. But we live in an environment where that's still contained and confined and not allowed. But the Thessalonians, it was free. They were losing their lives for their stand for the truth. And so Paul is encouraged by this. Paul thanks God for it, and God commends them for it. In the midst of their perseverance and endurance, in the midst, look at the rest of verse 4, of all your persecutions and afflictions. Persecutions and afflictions. We see the same pair used negatively uh, in Matthew 13 verse 21, remember when Christ was giving the parable of the soils and the, there's the one bad soil where the person that had received the seed of the truth had no firm root in himself, but it was only temporary. And when affliction or persecution, same pair, arises because of the word, immediately he falls away from the truth. So Christ there used it negatively. Paul uses the same pair 
positively also when he wrote to the church in Rome. Romans 8, verse 35, talking about the great preserving, saving, maintaining, holding love of God, love of Christ. Romans 8, 35, Paul says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? So that is the persecution and afflictions that Paul is encouraged by the Thessalonian church for their perseverance and their endurance. And the word afflictions here, it's the same word sometimes translated as tribulation. It describes, for example, an olive press where two stones come together and crush the olive so that what is squeezed out is the olive oil. And it's used, spiritually speaking, that when tribulation comes, what is the product? When you and I, when we are squeezed by the pressures of life, whether it's some kind of little bit of oppression or afflictions in life or cancer or disappointments or betrayal by friend or love, and what comes oozing out of us? And what God says here in Scripture, when the believer is pressed with this affliction, with this tribulation, what comes out is a deeper faith a deeper joy, a deeper strength. 1 Corinthians 4.12, Paul says, when we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. There's a greater strength. Romans 5.3, Paul said, we exult, we rejoice. That's the deeper joy. We exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation, knowing that affliction brings about perseverance. Again, beloved, a deeper faith, a deeper love, and a deeper joy, and a deeper strength. And the challenge is this. We live in a very cushy, very comfortable world, environment, and society. And because of the comfort, because of the success, because things seem to be going our way, we all tend to have this thinking. We expect that we'll wake up tomorrow. For you men that were here and blessed by Tim's great message yesterday, one of the quotes, one of the choice quotes from his message was, we are guaranteed only one day. God in Christ, God only guarantees anyone, even outside Christ, we're only guaranteed one day. That's today. That's the only day we are guaranteed. And the situation is because of the comfort, because of the expectation, even like I said, that we expect to wake up tomorrow, that kind of spiritual disease tends to make heaven suspiciously look like this present life. What's present, what's visible, what's now. And when that happens, the blessed hope of what lies ahead has a possibility and a tendency to fade away and drop even off the horizon. That's why it's important to sing songs like we sing and to remind ourselves where our hope is. It's not in this body. It's not in this time. It's in the future coming of the Lord of glory. Leon Morris, in his commentary, had this choice quote talking about suffering in the life of a believer and what the product is. This is what Morris said, quote, The New Testament doesn't gloss over suffering. It doesn't lose sight of the fact that in the good providence of God, suffering is the means of working out God's eternal purpose. Suffering develops qualities of character. It teaches valuable lessons. Suffering, Morris continues, is not thought of as something to be avoided by the Christian. It is inevitable. 
We must live out our life and develop our Christian character in a world dominated by non-Christian ideas. Beloved, okay, I'm adding the beloved. So, continue quote. Beloved, here's the quote. Beloved, our faith is not some fragile thing insulated from all shocks. It's robust. It's manifested in the fires of trouble and in the flames of affliction. And the very troubles and afflictions the world heaps on us become, under God, the means of making us what we ought to be. My insertion, beloved, suffering is not evidence that God has forsaken you. Suffering is evidence that God is with you. That is God's plan. That is God's purpose. Look at verse 5 briefly. That's why Paul here says this is a plain indication, and this is is actually added. He continues on, a plain indication, the suffering that we talked about in verse 4, a plain indication, evidence of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. Beloved, Paul's point here, God's point to you and to me is that not only can faith and love flourish in the midst of persecution and affliction, not only will faith and love flourish in the midst of persecution and affliction in the child of God who's walking with God, what Paul is saying here is that persecution and affliction is part of God's design for you. Not designed to punish, but designed to purify to fit the child of God for the kingdom of God. It is God's design and purpose, and it is good and righteous that God would use the hands of ungodly men and their persecution to purify and to fit his godly children for his kingdom. And it morphs us, it shapes us. We who are right now holy in position, but still unholy in practice. Now, having said that, by God's grace and mercy with the indwelling Holy Spirit, we are transformed in the process of sanctification. We put to death the deeds of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit blossoms to even greater levels in our walk. But when we think of God's command to be holy even as he is holy, we do realize that we are still have a large measure of being unholy in practice. So again, persecution and affliction fits we who are holy in position but still unholy in practice for the kingdom of God. Beloved, affliction, tribulation doesn't destroy you. It strengthens you. It fits you. It perfects. It matures you and me. In another word, God's transforming grace is preparing us preparing you, preparing me for our heavenly inheritance. So we mature and so we endure. Beloved, we live in the river of fallen humanity. If we're not swimming upstream, we're not standing still, we are getting swept away. But faith and love, faith and love anchor us immovably so when the storms of persecution and affliction come, we endure, we stand fast, and we don't drift. Beloved, please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this teaching, Lord. As I've been saying so many times in here, we realize that this 2,000-year-old letter is so practical, so relevant, so hopeful, so encouraging, so galvanizing, so 
purifying. Lord, help us individually for our faith to be ever enlarging. Help our, for us, for our love to one another to shine even brighter. Help us, Lord, that as we love one another, that love, that faith, these good works, the enduring hope that we enjoy in Christ, that this will be part of what will establish us at Santan Bible Church as a city of lights shining even brighter on a hill for a lost and dying world that's surrounding us now. And it is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen.